Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Lockdown Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Meddow, with a reminder, you can follow us on Twitter, at LockdownWBB. You can like us on Facebook, and I would urge you to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcast listening of choice. Go ahead and rate and review us. It's very helpful, and more ears listening uh, to women's basketball is good for just about everyone, certainly myself included. Uh, somebody else who really make sure that people pay attention to women's basketball. And uh, I was joking with her off air, but I I can't even imagine how she manages to do all the things she does. Uh, It's Christy Winters-Scott, who's with us uh, this morning. Christy, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. place I'd love to start is just your path to get to where you are now. Where did it start? Where did your love of basketball come from? Well, first of all, I, I got to take you all the way back to when I was probably about seven years old, and there was a, a hoop on our driveway that my dad cemented, and I have an older brother. He's only 13 months older than me, my brother Ron, and we would just go out there and, and shoot around and everything, and some of his friends would come over, but he would never really want me to you know, be around when his friends were around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but um, that continued um, on the on the backyard and and everything like that that continued for a couple years and you know and and it was I was the only girl there all the time um, with my brother's friends and we would be playing and when I got to be about seventh grade you know the boys got a little stronger and you know they started blocking my shot and I had to figure out how to get my shot off without getting it thrown into the grass Mm -hmm. and (laughs) so I I got a you know a, a little shimmy shake kind of like a, a show the ball and then a turnaround jumper and that became kind of my go-to post move just because I got it off against the guys and they were like somebody better check her and then inside I was like wait a minute now okay I figured something out uh you know I was probably about 12 13 years old but just playing against the boys when I was younger I think that kind of helped me um not necessarily physically but I think mostly mentally um, to be able to compete with the boys when I was younger, I think that really helped me a lot along the way. And, you know, my brother, again, like, he maybe wasn't so excited about me being out there, but um, not all the time. You know, when I was on his team, it was fun. But, um, right. <laughs> you know, we kind of go at it a little bit. It, but it was it was fun um, just to be out there. But I think also the spirit behind that, like, okay, I'm the only girl out here. I, I want to play, too, and... You know, I was so um, uber competitive, mm-hmm. and to be out there, I just kind of, I just kind of placed myself in that environment. Like they didn't ask me, "Hey, do you want to come play?" I was like, "I'm playing." So yeah. I think that that kind of attitude, I think, kind of um, enhanced my love of the game and my um, stick to itiveness, if you will, mm-hmm. and kind of a bold spirit. Um, and then I was, 
probably one of three girls at a 100-boy camp. Uh, I never touched a basketball, a summer camp, you know, and hmm. I was there, of course, with my brother, and the other two girls were there because their brothers were there, but they didn't really want to play. But I wanted to play. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, I never touched the ball, but I think that's when I, I got to understand how you can touch the ball in other ways than someone's passing it to you. So I learned how to rebound and maybe – get a seal or you know something I'm like I want to play too and I kind of just inserted myself a little and I think that also enhanced my love of the game because I wanted again to compete so you know I, I didn't want to be left out and I didn't feel it was right I was like we're all out here playing why can't I play right. you know uh, so can, I think can, that kind of enhanced it a bit can, yeah. can, can I ask you to that end you know, you're playing, and this is this is the mid 1980s, uh, where you went on uh, to, you know, star at the high school where you now are uh, coaching. But there yeah. was no WNBA at that time. There was no end game that involved playing professionally beyond playing overseas, which of course you also managed to do. I'd probably save some time and just spend. Uh, time talking about the things you haven't done I think would be a little easier but <laughs> I, I just wonder when you tell me a story like that you spend so much of your time mentoring and speaking uh, to young women about things is it because you are looking to make that path clearer to this generation of women who are growing up to play basketball or really do just about anything no doubt no doubt about it and I think um, that bold spirit that I was telling you about I think that is so critical, uh, especially for young women. And, you know, it's always in there. We all have, men and women, we all have thoughts and we all have passions that pull us and purpose that, that pulls us towards it. And I think that, you know, the more people that step towards that, you know, they don't settle for other things. But, you know, I really love this, but I'm doing this instead. Like, if you can pull yourself out of that rut and say this is what my heart is saying this is what my my soul is saying you know i this is where i feel comfortable this is where i feel great this is where i feel like you know it's not um a, a drudgery you know to do this you know mm -hmm. i everything that i do right now i love it and you know whether it's easy you know or you know or difficult like with coaching it's up and down you know and so whenever I'm in that kind of thing, I, I love it, the ups and downs of it all, just because that's how life is. And I tell the kids all the time, you know, my, my girls at Southlake, I tell them all the time that, you know, it's such a, a microcosm of, of life, you know, and it's beyond basketball what um, athletics teaches you. Yeah. And the more you develop and, and chisel out your character, at this young age, like, I didn't have somebody telling me that, and that's not a knock on coaches that I had, but I didn't, I didn't get that until college. Mm -hmm. So, so my purpose is, you know, if they can learn that at 14, 15, 16, they'll be better off when they go off to college. They'll be better served, and when they get to tap into themselves in terms of knowing what they want, knowing what they're capable of, I think for me, that's, that's my purpose for them is to, to let them know that they have that fire inside. And some people are, are more uh, gregarious, you know, they're very high spirited and, and some people are low key, but they have it in them. And it's up to me and, and all of our coaches to tap into that, you know, and to let them know that, Hey, 
everybody's different in terms of how they display their spirit. Mm -hmm. But you have a spirit, and you're here for a reason, and collectively we can get this done. So everyone's not the same, and that's another life lesson. But at the same time, when we can come together collectively as a group with one purpose in mind, that's when things are spectacular. That's when things start moving, and you can feel that on the floor without any words being spoken. So for me, my, my purpose is to continue to shine a light on, on that for them. Like, hey, it's, it's in you. And whatever that little voice is saying to you, you know, take all the positive things from that and well, move forward towards your purpose. So that's my, my biggest deal. Well, and it's, it's something you do every day in a lot of different ways. And I, I, I know everybody is grateful for it. Specific to you, though, when did it occur to you? When was it clear to you? Because like you said, there weren't people talking about this and there wasn't necessarily the obvious path. When was it clear to you that you could make a living in the game of basketball and if it took a while to get to that point for you then what did you think you would be doing instead oh wow that's such a great question i would say i didn't really know that there was an opportunity to play professional basketball until my junior year in college mm -hmm. um I played with Vicki Bullitt, who was a two-time Olympian uh, at Maryland, and, you know, she was a year ahead of me, so, and Dina Tate as well, and both of them were Kodak All-American, yep. um, and they were a year ahead of me, so, um, and playing with them, they had, um, they had agents, you know, coming in after their senior year, which was me heading into my senior year of college, so, um, they were discussing the options and the opportunities to play overseas. And, you know, Vicky went to play in Italy and, you know, just to hear that as a possibility, I'm like, you can keep, you can continue, you know, you can, you can still play because it really wasn't, you know, in the media, there was no Twitter, you know, it was not in the news. It wasn't in the Washington post or anything, USA today. Sure. And, you know, just to hear her say, you know, I have, I have um, an agent now and, I'm going to go uh, and play in Italy professionally. I was like, that's so awesome. I was like, I want to do it. I want to do <laughs> you know, because I love the game. And if you can extend it, I mean, my God, you're 22 years old. Who ends their athletic career at 22? Like, right. if you can extend it, you, you have to do it. So I played overseas for three years, and I was in Italy uh, for a year, and then I played in Switzerland for um, for two seasons so it was, it was an amazing experience. And no, I didn't know the language, but, you know, to get out on the court and, and play at that level um, with women who were in their 30s, right? I'm 22. Mm -hmm. I don't know the language. I'm over there playing with moms, you know, who are, <laughs> who are scrappy and, and just, you know, didn't speak the language at all. And, you know, my coach barely spoke English. Um, but I had um, Michelle Edwards, if you know her. Obviously, sure. Sure. Uh, played at Iowa um, for Vivian Stringer when she was at Iowa and now she's on her staff at Rutgers but she had been there for three seasons so she had acclimated herself to the language and she was kind of my translator if you will <laughs> and it was it was crazy because the coach was you know speaking so quickly in Italian and I would hear my name mixed in and I was like wait I was like wait he said my name like what did he say Michelle and, and she would help me and she's just like it's high low or something very simple I was like it took him Ten minutes to say, you know what I mean? Sure, of course. <laughs> it, it was it was quite frustrating, but you know she eased my transition in that regard. And um, I mean, it sounds. Know, I have, oh, sorry, go ahead. 
no, it's like I, was, I just had a lot of fun over there. Just a different culture and, you know, the basketball obviously is all the same, but the culture was a little bit difficult initially to uh, get comfortable with. And, and, I mean, it's an amazing experience, but I also can't help but wonder, you sell yourself a little short when you talk about the All-Americans that you played with. You know, you led uh, Maryland to an ACC title and uh, deep into the tournament. And I, I can't help but think, the WNBA not yet being in existence has to be something that was on your mind. And do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about the timing of it and the fact that uh, the career maybe came a little bit sooner than would have allowed you to maximize and, you know, play domestically here? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, I always joke with my parents. I say, you know, I wish you had me five years later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I feel like I just missed that. Um, when the Mystics came to D.C., I was 29, mm-hmm. 30. Um, so, yeah, I was right on the on the cusp of, you know, being kind of an older player coming through at that particular time. But the beauty of that was that I was still able to stay close to the game um, and the professional game by covering the Mystics. And I have um, served as a color analyst for them for the last – this is coming up to be my 10th year mm-hmm. – um, with them so just to have even though I, I'm not playing with them um, or or on the court with them necessarily I, I'm at the practices I am you know at all the home games uh, Frank Hammerhand and I cover um, the home games and this has been a, a, a blessing and yes would I love to play domestically over here absolutely but the fact that you know the Mystics are coming into their 20th year this year um, and just to have that be kind of a staple for my own children you know my three kids they've grown up with the mystics Mm -hmm. and um, my youngest son i think he knows more wnba players and he's a fan of more wnba players than nba players because he's right there at all the games and you know he loves it and the players you know they talk to him grab him around the shoulder and you know my daughter my goodness my daughter's sitting there she's 13 now and for her to sit there and be able to see these professional women Yes. Uh, I, I would have just marveled at that at her age. So just to be able to, to I guess, let them have that experience to see a professional women's league in the United States, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. So I kind of see it through their eyes and experience it through them. Mm-hmm. Uh, more so, yes, I, I would have loved to play, but I think now, like, it is what it is, <laughs> but right. you know the chapters of your life they unfold the way they unfold. So for me right now, it's incredibly special to see the professional game through my children and through my players at South Lake to come to games. And you know, I, I just think it's it's truly amazing. So uh, no, no yeah, question about great. it. And, and and to be able to see it that way. You're able to do that by virtue of all the work you do. And, and, and we, we should get to the Mystics, but before we get to the Mystics, let's approach this chronologically and talk a little bit about the Big Ten, which is yeah. rapidly hurtling towards the conference tournament in Indianapolis and had uh, what I would argue is the game of the year on Monday night. There, I, I certainly hesitate to bring this up. It's got to be a sensitive subject for a Maryland alum to talk about what happened on Monday night, but we should (laughs) probably anyway. I'm just curious what your impressions were of seeing uh, the top two teams in the league go head-to-head. What stood out to you? What surprised you? 
Well, I think, number one, I mean, with Maryland, I think with their ability to score the basketball, I think that has been impressive all season long. But Ohio State, obviously, um, is right there. But the thing that stood out to me in that game was the efficiency of Ohio State's offense. Mm-hmm. I mean, they shot over 60% for the game. I mean, how does that happen? I think they were playing at such a, a great pace. Uh, and Maryland, you know, they didn't maximize um, the opportunities, I think, in their fast break situations. Mm-hmm. I thought that Ohio State did. Um, and I think I was really surprised that Stephanie Mavunga didn't play. Um, we had done a, a preview earlier that day on the Big Ten Network for um, the Women's Sports Report. Mm-hmm. And Lisa Byington and I were on there, and she said, you know, the question of the day is whether or not Stephanie Mavunga will suit up and, and compete tonight against Maryland. And I said, you know, I'd be surprised if she doesn't. So for me, I think that's even more impressive for Ohio State because I thought with Stephanie Mavunga averaging 11 points, 11 rebounds, yeah would have to be on the court to manage with Brianna Jones inside. Yeah, well, and, and you know, to that to yeah. that point, to, to the point with Mavundra, it's, yeah. it, it's so significant. The ways in which Maryland, and I think you hit the nail on the head, the ways in which Maryland uh, maximizes what they're able to do is, one, by killing teams on the boards. And so having Mavundra, yeah. who is actually the national leader in rebound percentage, not just even in the conference, yeah. having her around right. to neutralize was going to be key. And not having her there, being able to hold their own anyway, was significant. But by yeah. Ohio State shooting 63% from the field, they, number one, limited how important rebounding was going to be. And number two, those made shots made it harder for Maryland to get out and transition. So you're absolutely right. Those are the two biggest ways that Ohio State's able to slow Maryland down. But Maryland right. is the top defensive team by efficiency in the league. So I guess I wonder whether that was Ohio State having a particularly great night, or you think Ohio State has figured some things out about how to attack the Maryland defense, considering they've now beaten them three times in the last two years? Right. I I think that's a a superb point, because um, I think it's definitely, they had a great night. I think it was a combination of all of what you said. I think, yes, they had a fantastic night. Uh, Kelsey Mitchell was 11 of 18 from the floor for Mm. 31 points. I mean, incredibly efficient. Uh, Most of her stuff came in transition, and the pace of play was really terrific. And I thought Alexa Hart played like Alexa Hart from last season. She was incredible inside, and not just offensively, but defensively, getting blocked shots and very active on the interior. But I think when you're talking about a Maryland team and and their defense, I I don't know. I I think their defense definitely is one of the top teams defensively in the country in terms of their effectiveness. But I think that Ohio State figured out some things in terms of playing at that same style, at that same pace. And I think they exploited Maryland in that regard uh, in terms of playing at that up-tempo and who was going to be most effective, like who was going to make more shots you know, at that high level of, of pace on offense. And, you know, Ohio State won in that regard. And I think with them being the only team in the Big Ten to beat them, coming up on, on three seasons, you know, they've lost yep. three games to Ohio State, and they haven't lost to anyone else at all right. in Big Ten competition. They've won 52 games, and they've lost three. 
and all three of those losses have come to Ohio State. So, yes, Ohio State has figured out some things, and sometimes it comes down to matchups. And I think that Ohio State matches up very well with Maryland in terms of player to player. If you go down the line, player to player, very comparable. And I just really think that, um, you know, again, the most impressive thing to me was that they did it without Mavunga inside. Yeah. And Tory McCoy, McCoy fouled out, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they still, you know, they had all these issues that would, you know, if you said to Coach Kevin McGuff for Ohio State, if you told him, that these things would happen, okay, no Stephen Mavunga, and then Tory McCoy is going to foul out with a chunk of time left, and you still walk out of there with the win at home, I, you know, especially at home. I think, you know, I don't know if he would have, you know, he would have probably looked at you like, that's going to be tough, you know? Yes. But, but even with those kind of variables, they were able to manufacture a fantastic win, you know, shooting the ball incredibly well, and again, you know, obviously taking away Maryland's ability to rebound because of their effective shooting. And Ohio State is really peaking at the right time. And it makes sense, too. Coach McGuff talked earlier this year about having a lot of moving parts, you know, having some freshmen, having a number of transfers, that it would take time. But you want them to be fitting together by March, and that's certainly what they're doing. I'm curious, just before we get off Ohio State, you know, Kelsey Mitchell has a decision to make in a couple of weeks. Uh, Ohio State hopes in, you know, in more than a couple of weeks, actually. But the decision about whether to come back to school or uh, to test her uh, herself at the WNBA level, uh, people I talk to, talent evaluators, have her, you know, anywhere from one to four at the top of the draft. If you were Kelsey Mitchell, is that the choice you'd make? Would you come back or would you go to a lead where, quite frankly, you could start on day one? Right. Oh, it's so tough. And, you know, as we were just discussing, I didn't have that option. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm in the top four anyway coming out. But um, but for Kelsey Mitchell, I think it's going to have to be a really um, a mesmerizing decision that she has there because, you know, last year Ohio State had all the injuries. They did not have the depth that mm-hmm. they have this season. They can go 10 deep, you know, um, and Kevin McGuff – prior to the season beginning said that was going to be their biggest strength, their depth and their health. If we can stay healthy with the depth that we have, we could be very dangerous. Mm -hmm. They've won 10 games in a row now. So for this team, like you said, to be peaking at this time of the season, I mean, it's got to be a fun thing for Kelsey Mitchell as a junior, you know, to be able to, to do that. So I think for her, it may depend upon how this season ends up. Um, if they get to the final four and if they're vying for a championship and wow, if they get a championship, would that be an easier, um, I guess, platform to step off of, Mm -hmm. you know, than leaving something undone at Ohio state. So I think it's really going to come down to, and this is just my opinion, whether or not um, she walks off of the collegiate level with a championship ring, or if she comes up short, if she comes up short, the competitor in Kelsey Mitchell, I believe, will come back for her senior campaign. But if she gets a championship, you know, maybe she's going to say, you know, I'm I'm done. I did what I had to do at this level, and I'm going to move on. So yeah, I think it's... It, it's really going to come down to what, how it ends up for her, I think. It will be fascinating. I, I had this conversation with Kelsey Plum, who faced a similar decision last year at the Final Four. She had already decided she was coming back 
before the final four uh, played out, and uh, she ultimately fell short of the title. But someone like Brittany Seitz at Syracuse, she made the decision, she was telling me, in the locker room following the loss in the national championship game. So I I think it's a fascinating decision. Uh, Another conversation for another time is, quite frankly, I think the WNBA owes it to players to give them more than that 48-hour period once they're... Uh, season is over in college and uh, that they should have a little bit more time the way their NBA counterparts do but that that's a whole other conversation uh, there is uh, there is someone who is definitely heading to the draft uh, at the conclusion of what's been a remarkable senior season and that that's Tori Jankoska at Michigan State mm-hmm. who to my mind does not get nearly enough publicity. I looked at what she did this weekend in Michigan, going into yeah. Michigan, you know, 12,000 people uh, in the stands and goes and beats a team almost by herself to take nothing away from her teammates. But she led all scorers. She was the leader in assists. She was the leader in blocked shots. And she yeah. continues to be a, a perimeter defender as good as anyone in the conference. What what do you make of Tori, and what have been your impressions about her and this Michigan State team that's gone through some a fair amount of turmoil this year? Right, I I'm a fan. I, I'm a fan of Tori Jankowska, and you know as I was talking about earlier, the bold spiritedness of hmm. players. It, it's you know it's palpable when you see a kid like Tori Jankowska come out, go behind her back, and get a step back three. I mean. That is confidence personified. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is so fun. She is so much fun to watch, and just to hear her speak about her team and about her coach. You know, Susie Merchant missed several games this season, and I think their connection um, is so special. So I think there's a lot behind that, and sometimes players like that need something to hold on to. Like, okay, coach isn't here. I'm going to do it for coach. And, you know, I think that has kind of led her spirit this season. But at the same time, um, last year with Ariel Powers there, they were the one-two punch. And, you know, obviously with Ariel Powers, she was she was Batwoman and mm-hmm. <laughs> Robin in that regard. So for her to step forward and be under the spotlight for the team, the face of the team, and, you know, to get the triple-double that she was seeking all season, like she has checklists. She wants to do things individually, but she wants the team, obviously, to be successful. But all of that is coming at the same time. And I think for for me to see someone, you know, set and seek out different um, challenges, like personal challenges for herself and set and seek out um, team purposeful uh, goals that they have for themselves, I think that has been really um, amazing to see, especially for um, a player like Tori, like you said, who kind of flies under the radar in terms of all of the special things that she brings to the table. And, you know, Susie Merchant said after that Michigan game, she's not just a scorer. Right. She defended Caitlin Flaherty, who was averaging 20 points a game, held her to four points. She had that defensive assignment all game long. She was two of 11 from the floor. And, you know, 
I just think that, you know, that goes as something that's definitely understated yeah, about her game. People it's need to pay attention to that defense. You know, per synergy, Tori Jankosta's top 30 in the country in opposing points per possession. So this is, that you're so right, and this is not a new thing, and it's one of the reasons why I think she is such an underrated prospect at the WNBA level. She's someone who's going to be able to play the one uh, as soon as she gets to the lead, and one of my favorite little stats uh, about her is even though she's fifth in the Big Ten in points per 40, she is second in the lead in assist percentage. So she manages to do them both, but she's going to be able to guard the ones at that next level, and I think that's really significant. Absolutely, and I think just her balance and, um, you know, the balance play, like you said, I mean, she can rebound like a villain. I mean, when she yeah. gets in there, she's a, a strong-bodied player. And, you know, like you said, she can distribute the ball. She can score the ball. She can shoot three. She finishes in traffic. Like, there's nothing that you can say about her game that's negative. I mean, what, what can't she do on the court? I think that she's just tremendously balanced. And I think any WNBA team would be excited to, to have her on their roster because of, number one, her confidence. And number two, her work ethic. And number three, she sets goals for herself. Like, she's not just, okay, I'm here. She's like, no, I'm here to do A, B, and C, and I'm going to check that list when I'm done. And I think those are the kinds of players that, that general managers and WNBA head coaches want in their organization. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, it's interesting. Charlie Cream has Michigan State right now as a nine seed, which would potentially set up Tory with a second-round matchup with the one with Connecticut. And Boy, oh boy, that would be fascinating to see. I'd, I'd love to see her get a chance to take on one of these great powers uh, with her Spartans. Yes. Uh, it, it, as far as the, the rest of the field goes, uh, Charlie has, uh, and, and you know, Charlie, to my mind, is the gold standard in terms of bracketology uh, on the women's right. side. He has right now, among the last four in Iowa, and among the first four out has Indiana. And I'm curious whether you see it that way, whether you think that as of right now, Iowa would be in Indiana with some work to do. Uh, that was a very surprising loss, frankly, this weekend uh, to a Nebraska team that has talent. Don't get me wrong. Jessica Shepard uh, is one of the yeah. great young talents in the country. But a, a tough loss for them to take in terms of resume. Do you see Indiana out, Iowa in as of right now? Do you see them both as having more work to do? Where do you, where do you see them relative to the bubble? Right. Well, I think both teams have, have work to do just to solidify, you know, their conversation for an NCAA bid. I think, especially um, going with what you said about Indiana, I think it's been quite shocking. I think this season, um, coming into this year, I had had them preseason pick number three in the conference behind mm-hmm. Maryland and Ohio State. And just for them to be able to bring back five starters from last year's team, like on paper, you know, and statistically you're looking at that saying, okay, they had such a great year last year, went to the NCAA tournament, made a strong run, and then for them to return that nucleus, you just kind of expected more things um, out of them, especially down the stretch here. And it was a very concerning game against Nebraska that Indiana lost this weekend. I I just feel like the way that they lost that game was uh, very concerning and that two plays that um, Nebraska had impressed offense and 
and scored easily on the back end because they were trapping up top. I, I don't know. I was just kind of surprised that it happened back to back. You know, yeah. sometimes you get burned on on the first one. And I think I was watching the game at the uh, at the Big Ten um, Network. We were in the in the back there watching it in the cubicle, and I said, "No way that happens again." I was like, "Oh, they got they got beaten long, you know." Mm-hmm. And then the same, then the same play happened right after that. So for me, as you know, as a coach, that's that's frustrating. I'm sure for for Terry Morris, but um, as the players, I mean, you have to execute. You can't allow things to snowball like that. And if it happens once okay we got to fix that it can't allow it to happen again so i think the and such an experienced group too right that's what i'm saying yeah you have all those kids back you know and and albeit not all five have started every single game this season it's been two maybe three players who have been on um in the starting lineup consistently for indiana but i think you know those kinds of things at this juncture of the season as you're prepping for the tournament next week those are concerns to me, the focus aspect of it. And I think that's been an issue for Indiana and Big Ten play this year. I think they started out a little surprisingly slow in yeah. conference play as well. So um, I think for Iowa, same thing. I think they're you know, a little bit up and down. Uh, I don't know if they've done enough in terms of strength against top 50 in the RPI. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they're right on the cusp. But I think both of these teams, if Iowa and Indiana could go into the Big Ten tournament and win a couple of games. I think, obviously, that would improve their chances, but they've got to have a strong weekend this weekend to close out. They've got to get a win. And also, you know, they've got to get at least, I would say they've got to get two wins in the tournament to make a case for themselves. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. And what's interesting, you talked about RPI, and I was at 46 in the RPI. Strength of schedule 24 has helped them quite a bit, but it really yeah. will be important. I mean, they are 16 and 11, and how they finish, I think, is going to go a long way towards predicting how they're able to do it. They they. Their strength of schedule has really helped them, even you know, compared to uh, a Northwestern, where they're at 82, and that's a Northwestern team, 18 and nine overall, uh, with right. some significant talent. Ultimately, be great to see them both make it. Uh, Indiana as well, though, and I, I'd love to see a national TV audience uh, get a look at Tyra Bus. Uh, they certainly deserve to, and it would certainly uh, behoove everyone to see it. I will put you on the spot for the Big Ten tournament. Uh, we didn't get this because of an upset last year, uh, that Maryland-Ohio State game. If the two of them meet up in the tournament, uh, Maryland obviously as dominant as they've been this year, but Ohio State coming up with that win, and uh, Stephanie Mavungra should hopefully be back by then. Who you got in that one? Maryland-Ohio State. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you put me on the spot. I have a sweat bead popping out of my temple <laughs> right now. Um, I would say, I mean, the adjustments by Maryland need to be made, obviously, in terms of maybe controlling the pace a little bit more. I know they want to go up and down. They don't want to adjust and say, okay, that pace in the last game against Ohio State was too quick for us. It was too fast. I think they still want to go fast. I think mm-hmm. Maryland needs to find a way to be – consistent offensively in terms of being able to play at that pace and defensively I think they need to probably make some adjustments there how many players do you send back like how many players do you to take to the offensive boards you know we know Maryland is a, a powerhouse on the glass we know that they get to the offensive boards we know that they lead the league there 
But how many players, do you adjust that? Do you adjust how many players go in for the offensive boards because of how well Ohio State pushed that ball? I think there has to be some probably defensive transition adjustment. So if Maryland can do that, I would say Maryland has a strong chance to get their third Big Ten title. But if that is still an issue for the Terps, I think Ohio State, if they can come back and shoot with the effectiveness that they did in their game on Monday night, 63%, I think that they have a strong chance. Uh, if they can keep Maryland at bay because of their you know, efficient shooting, then they can get it done too, and they'll walk away with, with a title. So it's, it should be fascinating. Variables. I mean, and to your point, which, which I think is really where the fulcrum of this game will ultimately be decided, is noticeable. Destiny Slocum is one of my favorite players to watch yeah. in the country. Had her on the podcast earlier this year. But she was tired in the fourth quarter of that game. That's the that's Destiny Slocum time. That's where she makes those plays. And, and who can blame her? Nobody can really chase around Kelsey Mitchell for four quarters and come away feeling... Uh, Lacking fatigue, for lack of a better right. phrase. And so I wonder what Brenda Fries can do to try and share the load of defending Kelsey Mitchell. I think if you can put yourself in a position to do that, Kelsey Mitchell, you know, she top 30 points regardless, maybe you can yeah. put yourself in a position where, at the very least, uh, Destiny is around to be able to counter those plays and come back at the other end and do it. But, I, you right. know, move. Moving beyond Destiny into uh, another Maryland guard uh, who finds herself back in the area, and that's, uh, that's a certain Christy Tolliver, she has been part of a pretty decent offseason for the Washington Mystics, and I wanted to talk to you about that uh, before I let you go. What do you make overall of uh, bringing in Tolliver, bringing in Elena Deladon? Do you think it's fair that the Mystics have taken literally every three-point shooter in the league and left nobody uh, for the rest of the teams? <laughs> well, first of all, I, I think it's amazing what um, the general manager and head coach Mike Tebow is, has been able to do for the Mystics roster this season. I think it's been... Um, it's been fantastic that the moving parts are, are, are shifting in favor of up-tempo offense. And to get a player like Elena Deladon, who is the MVP in 2015, that's just, it's so exciting for the area. And so many people just bump up in Deladon, everyone's talking about it. It's, it's really, um, everyone's bubbling with excitement in D.C. But to have Christy Tolliver back in town, I think, obviously, a fan favorite at Maryland because of that shot uh, mm -hmm. in 2006 to win the – or to take it to overtime to win the championship over Duke. I think that, um, you know, she's obviously welcomed back with open arms. A lot of the Mystics fans are also um, Maryland season ticket holders, so you have mm. um, that, that cross-reference, but you also have – Delaware's women's basketball team who sold out every game yep. uh, up there with Elena Deladon and now they're within under two hour drive to get to games. I think you're going to see a, a difference in attendance for the Mystics just because of those two factors but on the court I just think uh, Mike Tebow has such a great mix of players and yes he had to give up uh, a ton of uh, core players that he's had in the system the last couple seasons and Stephanie Dolson and and last year with um, Kalia Copper, and you know you, you have to give up pieces. And you know Bria Hartley and 
and Kia Vaughn are now in New York. So he had to give up a lot to get what he has now. But I think what he has now is uh, a core of players who can spread the floor offensively. And I think that's going to be the beauty of, of this summer for the Mystics, the ability to open up the court a bit. I, you know, with Elena Deladon at 6'5", and her ability to shoot threes and, you know, step out, and Christy Tolliver, her ability to break defenses down. She can shoot threes as well, but she can break defenses down and, and kick it to a player like Elena Deladon and knock down shots, and Ivy Latta to knock down threes. So I think it's going to be really fun to watch the, the pace of play for this Mystics team. But I also think the experience of Christy Tolliver and winning at every level, I mean, she has a a college championship, she has a WNBA championship, you know, overseas she's done a tremendous job, so I just think with with her experience and her saying in the press conference when she first um, signed a couple weeks ago, she said I want to be a leader for this team, and the fact she said this is my eighth, ninth year in the league I want to be a leader for this team I want to have a strong voice and I think that's going to be really special to watch for for Christy Tolliver in D.C. this summer. Yeah, it's something that defies imagination until we see it. Just the idea of having Tolliver be able to knock down those shots and be able to space the floor, not just yeah. in terms of the shooting ability, but between Deladon and Emma Meesman, who was, for the record, on my all-WNBA second team last year, I think clearly one of the top ten players in the league already, and the league leader in three-point shooting percentage overall, well, that takes it to another level because you're not just talking about a pair of elite shooters. You're talking about a pair of elite shooters who can also play high-low in the post at the same time, and I just don't know how you guard them or how you keep either of them from getting their shots off. I I have two questions about this team that I'm trying to figure out and, and might be just worries for the sake of worrying, but... Uh, when we talked to Mike uh, following the initial deal, he talked about how his offense uh, was keeping him up nights, thinking about ways to utilize. And he said, we'll figure out the defense later. Uh, right. and, and that really stuck out to me. And it made me wonder, what do you think, and, and as, as a post player uh, of yourself, you, you know the importance of rim protection. What do you think they need to do in order to fill out this lineup and make sure that they're able to get stops as you get later in the playoffs. They're going to go up against, you know, big team in L.A., a Minnesota team uh, that has Sylvia Fowles and the ability to convert in the half court. What do you do at the five in order to make sure that happens? Right, well, I believe they're bringing uh, Latoya Sanders back. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's a great rim protector. She's long, lengthy. Um, She was averaging two blocks a game. I just think that she could help out uh, tremendously well. And also, Tiara Ruffin-Pratt, I mean, she doesn't – she's not 6'5 or anything like that, but she plays a rugged style of defense. I mean, she was the player who guarded Elena Deladon when they played Chicago. So that was the matchup. And you also have Taylor Hill on the perimeter that we haven't talked about. Mm -hmm. And she had an amazing season last year, her breakout year. And had there been an all-star game, I think she was in the conversation uh, for a bid on that. But I think her ability to get to the basket also uh, changed so much last year. She's not just a catch-and-shoot player anymore. She can sweep and finish. And I think that was um, really special to see from her last year. So I think they have the balance. And I think they have the pieces. And I think it's going to be – 
um, done collectively on the defensive end. They don't have a Sylvia Fowles, no. Um, but I think what they do have, they have collective pieces defensively, and that's going to allow them to get things done on the defensive end, especially on the interior with Sanders in there. And Deladon, I mean, she's not a slouch defensively. She's 6'5". That's a big body. And, you know, Emma Mieseman's right there, too, and she can step out a little bit. She has uh, footwork that is, is mirroring a, a player much smaller than her yeah. body. Uh, so I, I think that I think they're going to be okay defensively, but I also think, you know, offensively, and as we've seen, like we were talking about Ohio State, offensively, if you can knock down shots, you know, you can kind of take a hit on the defensive end a little bit sometimes if you can, you know, not give up as many shots on that side Absolutely. That you're making. Oh. A- absolutely, and your point on Hill is well taken. She was by far the leader in free throw attempts last year, uh, uh, upwards of six a game if memory serves, and uh, shoots mm-hmm. free throws extremely well. So that the amount of room she's going to have to drive this year uh, boggles yeah. the mind as well. The only other thought I have is Mike talks about positionless basketball all the time, and mm-hmm. it's certainly true, and there are a lot of facilitators uh, on the court at any given time, but no pure facilitator really on this roster other than Natasha Cloud. Do you do you see Cloud starting, or do you see something more like, you know, Ivory, who's a terrific player, but a combo guard ultimately, uh, and now uh, a year removed from knee surgery, so you'd have to think her numbers are going to get that much better. Do you think that that is the better way for them to go, not even so much as a starting lineup, but even as a crunch time lineup? Right. I think, you know, we've seen Ivory Latta, we've seen her start, we've seen her come off the bench. Uh, and last year, yes, she did have the, the knee surgery and missed um, several games at the beginning of the year and never really got uh, going in terms of rhythm offensively for her. But the year before, she probably she started the first half of the games and then Cloud started the second half of the game. Uh, I just think they're so versatile in that regard. I think they could mix and match and, and go with matchups, if you will, and play like a speaker lineup defense-minded, I think they have um, different players that they could plug in, but I think with with Ivory and her um, her spark off the bench, that was the reasoning behind her coming off the bench, but her numbers didn't waver that season. Mm -hmm. You know, her numbers stayed the same whether she started or not, so I think um, that's kind of the beauty of it as well. Like, you're not going to come in and, and make a misstep in terms of losing production from players if you rotate them in and out, whether they start or not. I think it's going to come down to who they play and what what serves them best in terms of matchups with opponents. And, you know, with Cloud, with Lana, with Hill, with uh, Tierra Ruff and Pratt, you know, I just think they have so many players they can mix and match in the perimeter. Well, so I'm going to put you on the spot again, if you don't mind. <laughs> that this is, this is a remarkable Mystics roster, but, of course, we are coming off of – wonderful WNBA season that concluded with a pair of super teams uh, in Minnesota and LA playing down to literally the final possession of the final game of the WNBA finals. If you had to choose, do you think that the Washington Mystics with the talent they have put together are the favorite to win this league? There you go again. (laughs) I think that Washington has a terrific chance. I think that if they can stay healthy with the players that Mike Tebow has established on this roster, I think they have a great chance to make a push for a championship this year. And, you know, I was at the press conference with um, Elena Deladon, Coach Tebow, and Taylor Hill a couple weeks ago, 
And those questions were asked. And I think Mike Tebow's answer was perfect. He said, you know, on paper, it looks like we can win the championship today. Mm-hmm. But it's a process. It's going to be a chemistry issue. We've got to mesh all of these different players together. Um, we have new faces. So it may take a little bit of time. And I think Elena Deladon said the same thing. Like, we all want to win a championship. Mm-hmm. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some time. And I think we just have to wait and see in terms of how quickly all these players acclimate each other to one another and see how the chemistry develops throughout the season. Well, but I, I think I, I, I like I liked the she part. I'm not loving the waiting part. I'd really like this to uh, be starting already because this is going to be an effort season in Washington and throughout the league. So if there's any way we could speed that process up, that would be greatly appreciated. I guess there's a tremendous amount of great basketball between now and then, though, of course. And I am looking forward to hearing you talk about all of it with your... Uh, 134 different jobs uh, (laughs) throughout the industry. I applaud you for all that you're doing and uh, thank you for it. Uh, Christy Winters, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time, even with all of that going on, uh, to talk to us here at Lockdown Women's Basketball. No, I appreciate the time and the ability to talk about the game that I love. uh, The opportunity is amazing and Thank you for your voice for women's basketball. I think that it's so special to have so many people involved with continuing to keep the light on women's basketball and and the evolution of our game and the love and the bold spiritedness behind it. So uh, I appreciate your opportunity. It it is it is one hundred percent my pleasure. And and to the listeners, thank you so much also for tuning in once again. Just a reminder, you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB like us on Facebook, or go ahead and rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. I'm Howard Megdahl, wishing you a wonderful day.